Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatana. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Etienne Salborn. Etienne and I had the pleasure of meeting earlier this year as both of us attended TED in Vancouver, and we found ourselves at the same table for dinner one night. Even though we didn't have much chance to talk on the evening, we stayed in touch, and I'm so glad we did, so I could have a chance to ask him about what he does, more about his work with the nonprofit which he helped build called SINA, which stands for Social Innovation Academy. In our conversation, Etienne tells me about his life journey, how a volunteering engagement in Uganda at the age of 18 changed the course of his life. We talk about his studies and the choice of a very special master's degree in Innsbruck, Austria, and how that gave him the tools, the support, and the momentum to build Sinner. Then we dig into how he developed the system, a replicable model that could help unleash the potential of the youth in rural Ugandan communities. We talk about the Sinner scholars that he seeks to serve and how he supports them to flourish, not only finding their own purpose, but solving problems for their community. And in so doing, building businesses and creating jobs and opportunities around them. Sina isn't a typically hierarchical organization, so we dig into the topic of holacracy. We talk about the importance of self-discovery and experiential learning that is built into the curriculum, their unique approach to group feedback and the concept that underpins the model one he calls responsibility. I am so happy to be bringing you this conversation with this creative and talented social entrepreneur. So without further ado, I give you my interview with Etienne Salborn. Happy listening. Well, Etienne, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks. As I mentioned to you before, to start with, what I like to do is to ask people who they are and where they're from. And the main purpose for that question is for us to get to know each other and for our audience members to get to know you before we talk about what you do. And I think it's, let's say, a rich jumping off point for for a conversation. So if that's okay with you, will you tell us about who you are and where you come from? Yeah, definitely. So I'm Etienne Salborn, and I was born and raised in Berlin, Germany. And yeah, I went to school in Berlin, Germany, more like a typical child. But my parents always were quite adventurous when it came to traveling. So we always traveled when there was an opportunity. So I got to experience like wanting to get out of the city we were in as well as a child. And so when I had the first opportunity... I first did a semester abroad in the U.S. when I was 16 for one year. Well, then it turned out to be one year. And yeah, I started to enjoy more and more as well, exploring other places and other countries and cultures. And then I had another opportunity when the German military service at that time, when I was 18, was still obligatory. Wanted to yeah, draft me, but I didn't want to do that. And I knew there was a chance to do community work in Germany or also community service abroad. And then I decided to look for an opportunity. And that's how, for the first time, when I was 19, I came to Uganda. And that has 
shaped me ever since. Yeah, I think so much as a little bit of an introduction to. I don't know how de- how detailed you want to get into more of the early life. Why don't you Why don't you tell me a bit about that year in Uganda? Yeah, for sure, because that was really transformational for me. Because first of all, I didn't know much about Uganda, and at that time, also Uganda was still experiencing a civil war in northern parts of the country. So also, my parents were not very excited to have me go there. Even at some point, said if you're going there, you'll never come back to this house. But once they saw that I wasn't be able to be stopped, then they started to support me as well more. And I went to a rural village in Uganda and lived and worked for one year in an orphanage where I supported the kids to do anything they needed support with. But also I started seeing that the kids, after finishing primary school, had nowhere to go. and there was a girl that approached me with this problem and she was scared of what her future is going to be like because she didn't know where she's going to go after finishing primary school because the orphanage stopped at that point. And I saw that all the kids have the same problem. So during the year in Uganda, I started approaching family and friends if they would not want to support a child to go to a boarding school in Uganda. And the resonance was very positive. So I started in 2007 a sponsorship program for the first generation of these kids. And over the years, every year, new kids would join the sponsorship program. So it started to become more and more kids in the program. And in 2009, then I also started when I was back in Germany, an NGO that started to manage these sponsorships more professionally. That was my first year in Uganda. It was really transformative for me as well in terms of seeing things differently, coming from more developed country and seeing people, especially in the rural areas, not having much, but still being very happy and having different values in terms of family and supporting each other, which is quite different in, in Europe, for example. Tell me more. You mentioned the values. What marked that shift for you? There was one kind of incident that maybe summarizes this quite well. Once I met more, not really elderly, but more advanced age man in the village, and he shared with me how happy he was that he had a bicycle now. He just bought it a few days or weeks ago, and now he can get to his farms and, and his work basically much faster, and that he had saved up for this for quite a long time. And in the conversation, I then asked, what is next? Are you having any plans in the future, maybe to buy a motorcycle or anything like that to move forward and, and potentially be able to achieve more? And he said, no, I, I enjoy now that I have a bicycle and I want to spend more time with my family and I don't want to work harder to have something that I don't really need. And that was like a, a different mindset compared to many people in other countries that are focusing on always having more and more. And um, it's not always what will make us also more fulfilled. So in his case, his family was making him bring in the fulfillment and the work was more the, the need to survive, but he didn't need to ever create more. So that was one example where the different value systems changed for me, mm. but also the way people support each other has advantages and disadvantages. People would never 
put an elderly person in a distant home and just have other people take care of the person. They will always try to find support from within the family structures. And I think that is really nice. However, on the other side, it also sometimes puts people into difficult situations that they might have to quit what they're doing and then go back to the village to take care of someone from their family. So everything has disadvantages, but also a lot of advantages. And unfortunately, the advantages before coming to Uganda, you never really hear anything about that, right? It's always more the dark side, the conflicts, the problems in the whole region. And of course, some of them are there, but there's also a lot of joy and energy and wonderful people that you meet. And that's what yeah, got me connected to Uganda mm. to keep coming back as well with the sponsorship programs every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, then from there, everything started yeah, changing even more towards what we are doing now. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a, that's a really beautiful story. So I'd love to hear from you. What happened when you went back to Germany after that first year and a half trip? After one year in Uganda, really living in a rural village where I was the only non-African foreigner in maybe a radius of half an hour, I definitely experienced like a culture shock going back to Germany where already like the immigrations landing and just like people very almost angry, just stamping your passports. And from then on, started to, of course, compare quite a lot, which was not helpful. I don't know, one meal in a restaurant in Germany, you can pay food for a family in rural Uganda for a month, things like that. And if you start comparing, then you'll not enjoy anything anymore. But it took some time to adjust back. Uh, but it was clear I wanted to continue working in that direction. The sponsorship program was already running. And so I also looked for the university program that yeah, would allow me to get more into that direction. And I had already found one actually while I was in Uganda that I researched a bit and then they sent me the link saying you can request for more detailed information and we'll send it by post. And I was like, ah, funny. Let me put a Ugandan PO box and actually two weeks later there was a big envelope. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, then I decided they have sent it to me, I can just fill it out, send it back. And just about two weeks after I was back in Germany, I was invited for the interviews at that university in Austria, where the course was nonprofit social and healthcare management. And I did the interviews, not really expecting much, but then was accepted. And decided, why not? I, I can just study that. And so went straight basically a few weeks later to Austria and started studying there and built during the program more the nonprofit to manage and organize the sponsorship programs and learn some basics for project management and how to run an organization, which was helpful. And I think the biggest value was that the program allowed for a lot of flexibility in terms of writing my bachelor thesis in Uganda. So I had a time to go back for like almost a few months to research more and write about things in Uganda and continued growing the sponsorship program. Every year new kids would join 
So when then I was looking for what next after the bachelor program, I was actually a bit lost. I didn't know what, what next now. So I decided to take a year off and actually traveled around the world for one year, in about 27 countries. And it was in Nicaragua where I found my purpose, I would say, because I, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And it was in Managua, the capital, where other travelers told me, don't go there. It's not nice and it's dangerous and not much to do. Where well, I ended up staying for quite some time because I met really interesting people who were trying to get off the life of drugs and crime and street violence by using art as a tool to help themselves and others. And I was quite inspired and tried to support them a little bit with the crowdfunding campaign and started realizing, oh, this is actually what I want to do. Support people that want to create a positive impact, but they don't know how to do it or they don't have the means to get it started to help them in that early stage of making the impact. And that was about five years before then SINA, the Social Innovation Academy, started which is what we are doing now, exactly like that, helping young people to unleash their potentials and create their own change and their own social enterprises. But it was, I think, in that period where I figured out this is what I want to do. So when I came back, I looked then again for another master's program to also help me in that direction and found another program also in Innsbruck in Austria that was called Peace, Development, Security and International Conflict Transformation. I remember you telling me about that name and I thought, damn, that's that's hefty. But it sounds fascinating though. Tell me about the program. Yeah, the program has been amazing for me. It's one of the most alternative master programs, I would say, that potentially exists in Europe or even in the world, where they have an accreditation, but it's not about exams, actually no exams. It's hardly about grades. In the end, you get grades because there have to be grades, but Nobody really cares about the grades. What it is all about is to find your own peace before you can go out in the world to create peace. Because if you are not in peace with yourself, everything else will probably not work out well. So there are a lot of tools that you learn from a whole one-week meditation camp in the, in the mountains. But as well, trying and testing out if things are right for you or not. So there's also like a whole one-week simulation with the Austrian army in the mountains where there's a whole simulation of the conflict war zone and how you deal in that situation with challenges that will come up, things you see and experience that can be also traumatizing. So is that something you really want to get into or not? And so you basically discover yourself and it's more experiential learning as well. So people learn different things and this army simulation, someone will take away something that for me is completely different and we all learn what is maybe the most meaningful to us. And the whole philosophy of the program is also not to impose on others, but to let them basically discover their own answers. And that was quite important for what followed after with SINA because some of the basic principles I experienced in that program also then transitioned into the creation of SINA. Did you say that you had a one-week meditation camp in the mountains where you were to yeah, every, every find semester. your own peace? Can you tell me about that? That sounds indeed very alternative and amazing. Yeah, it's it also built up in a way that you first have this army simulation and straight after 
from one place, you drive to the mountains and you go into the meditation camp. So you also have some more time to reflect maybe what would happen before. But also you learn tools on you know, meditation and mindfulness and how you can find your inner peace. And that's every semester. So we had one of the coldest weeks in the history of Austria that one semester where it was minus 27 degrees Celsius. No! And you were in the mountains. But it's also then a really interesting experience. And you're sleeping in, in like tipi tents and in the summer then it's, of course, again, a different experience when the nature is blossoming. But just being in the nature and all that also adds a component of trying to connect to yourself and to, again, what you want to maybe do in life or how you want to live your life. That's amazing. Okay. So a few years later, you created a different nonprofit. Can you tell us about SINA and what it stands for? Yeah, that's where also the masters intersected a bit with SINA or the story from before. So I had an opportunity during the master's program to do one semester abroad in Costa Rica at the university mandated by the UN, University for Peace. And I did peace education for one semester and also met very interesting people that are more established in their fields who built, for example, project-based schools in the U.S. or did different things from anywhere around the world. And I was looking for a topic also for my master thesis. I didn't want to just write something that gives me a title, but something that would actually be meaningful. So I realized, okay, it was the same time where young people in Uganda now from the sponsorship program had actually grown up, the first generation from 2006, 2007, finished their high school, but were starting to see that with an education of a high school degree in Uganda, they're not going to find jobs because there's a very high youth unemployment rate and the university tuition fees are very expensive. So that was a challenge that was coming up. So I decided, why not look for my master thesis as well into this educational system and how it works and went back to Uganda for that. And together with the first generation of the kids that had grown up, we had an open space where we discussed this challenge and what possible solutions can come up. And it was clear actually what is needed would be a space for young people to create their own jobs if there's hardly any jobs available. And that was basically the starting point for SINA, the Social Innovation Academy, that I started to develop a bit in my thesis in terms of academic concepts, but we wanted to get started because everyone was excited about it. And some of the supporters of the kids that had grown up also wanted to support this because they also saw the same challenge that they had sponsored a child for six years, finished high school, but what next? So some of the sponsors we had who were more middle class or more wealthier families or even entrepreneurs themselves were the first supporters I got on board to help us buy land in Uganda and start setting up the first community of Sina, where the first generation of the sponsored youth were the first scholars, how we call them, the first beneficiaries. And together, we started yeah, developing a system, a model to unleash the potentials and create our own jobs. And yeah. I'm fascinated because I think that in our last conversation, I, I had a hint about how 
this master's even more than the program he did before. And this research around peace, how that was incredibly important to you. But now you describe the open space and how you sat and discussed with the first youth what would be the right way forward in terms of finding a solution for them. Now, I can feel the reverberation of the peacekeeping, the openness, the dialogue. It's really wonderful and very inspirational. Now, tell me a little bit about what happened next. How did you get started with this project? Because it's really unique in so many different ways. Early days, we started in 2014, in June, with the first recruitment of a few Ugandan facilitators, basically. But we looked for very diverse backgrounds, not much about what skills they were bringing in, but just a lot of diversity. And a few of the people I'd met in Costa Rica, one from India, one from Spain, one from the US, as well as some Ugandans that I identified more being experts in the field of education or alternative education for my master research, were all coming together in Uganda for the first few months. And so we created a facilitator training and kind of together started creating almost the culture and the structures, how to get started. And within the first few weeks, also then the first scholars, beneficiaries joined and were part of it. And we started also to build our space together where I had come across a post on Facebook where I saw people in Nigeria constructing houses out of plastic bottles. And I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. We have to build houses anyway. So why not try that? And we were starting to build our first learning spaces out of plastic bottles together which was also becoming like a team-building activity and bonding and using the material as well as part of the curriculum almost to think outside the box. And we started to have tools how young people can unleash their potentials, but also how we can get into the development of jobs, right, businesses, which in the beginning was not easy because... All the ideas that started to come up were the most typical enterprises that everyone sees around themselves, doing poultry or doing some street vending or food stalls at the roadside, these kind of things that thousands of people are doing as self-employment. But that's not going to create real job opportunities. Maybe you can employ yourself, but what about others as well, creating jobs? And also we wanted to have social entrepreneurship. So enterprises that are actually solving challenges for the society, for the environment. And one idea that came up, which actually we didn't have to employ for very long, was let's give each other a challenge. And everyone starts with about $20 in local currency. And the goal was by the end of the week, use the money, invest it into something, produce something, sell something, whatever, and try to make a profit. And if the profit has been made by doing something that as well has a social value, we're going to double your profit. If you do something that has an environmental value, we're going to also double your profit. If you do something that has a social and environmental benefit, we're going to triple your profit. And that was it. From that on, from that moment onward, all the ideas went more into social and <laughs> environmental problem solving. And we never had to do that challenge again. Because then it started to become like a self 
repetitory practice that people saw what are the ideas that are upcoming and they learned from the new generations, learned from the older generations and it started to evolve and evolve. And ever since it has been enterprises or ideas that are really trying to solve real challenges on the ground. And yeah, that was all about 2014. And in 2015, we then started to really move in our own space before we were renting like an old government house from the British colonial times that was next to our land that we had renovated for a bit and really started feeling home in our own space that I had now a few houses out of plastic bottles and also some dormitories to sleep in and started to develop through a lot of trial and error, five different stages. Because we saw, okay, the first ideas started to work out, but people were still missing a lot of skills, how to run the business. The first enterprises were successful quickly, but also collapsed quickly. And it made sense because at that point, it wasn't just former orphans who were now our scholars, but it was all sorts of marginalized young people, ages of 18 to 30 years, majority early 20s, coming from backgrounds of having been a child soldier in the past, to people with disabilities, to people that have grown up in extreme poverty, to any kind of difficult background. And many of those young people never really had much responsibility in their life before for themselves. They were always just in the educational system as well as in a society following orders of what others told them. And all of a sudden, they were told, like, now you create your own business. It, it didn't work so, so well as we were hoping because of the background people came from. So together, we decided to create different stages that over the years have really refined to be very, very powerful, impactful now and powerful, which it all starts with something we call the confusion stage. So the first three months of the Sina journey basically is quite confusing because people come from a society that is very hierarchical and are more used to following orders. We start with detailed focus on personal development. So it all starts with myself again. Who am I? What is my purpose? Why, why am I here on this planet? Maybe I've gone through very difficult experiences or even traumatic experiences. And how can I transform that into maybe creating a change for myself and for others that have gone through similar experiences? And also having tools on how to set goals and how to work on them every day through accountability partners and also life coaches that people know where they want to be in life and how do they get there as well. And it's almost in the first three months like a caterpillar butterfly transformation because most of the beneficiaries, the scholars we have, could not even imagine from the background they're coming from that one day they could fly, basically. And once they discover their purpose and are setting themselves up to steps every day to get there, it can almost be like a switch from one day to the other that people start running off. I, I know what I want to do and I'm going to make it happen. And that's when I start flying. And that transformation is really beautiful and, and inspirational to also others. And people, I think the power of community in that sense is really strong that people support each other. And also once you see what can happen and someone becomes successful, it really inspires 
others as well to work hard and to, yeah, create almost anything. So in the very early days, we had still a lot of struggles. People were sometimes maybe over-partying and, and abusing a bit the freedom that was there. But it started year after year to really get more towards why are we here and what can I create and how can I become the best version of myself and create the change that I want to see in the world. And it all starts with this three months of the confusion stage. But then we also realized after the first three months, people are still not having the skills. To run a business, you also need the skills. And most of our scholars didn't have much of formal education, potentially dropped out of school, or didn't have much of business experience working anywhere. And how can we help to get the skills you need to run a business? And we set up everything from the beginning as a self-organized system. So this means that authority is distributed and there's no hierarchy, no boss that tells others what to do, but there's also no consensus that we all have to agree on everything. But we have a system that distributes authorities into roles and responsibilities, similar than nature's organizing complexity. So we have autonomous cells in our bodies who are forming organs and they organize themselves around a purpose almost. And again, organs in the end form the whole body. So there's a lot of intersection between the different autonomous entities, but also everything is forming a whole. And this is almost like how our structure is working. And the young people take up responsibilities in that structure. So after the first three months, people start taking up very small roles in the community. But if they're doing them well, they will be invited to take up bigger roles and bigger roles and ever bigger roles. So the whole process, we call it free responsibility. So combining freedom and responsibility. Because the more responsibility someone takes, the more freedom she will gain. And in that process, after some time, starting your enterprise will then be almost a logical next step. Because you're already managing budgets, you're already managing a big part of the community of about 60, 70 people around you. And you're coming up with new solutions. And when you're doing the work, also new ideas always come up. And those can then be tested. And that's where young people gain the skills. And then we try out the ideas that are coming up in like a boot camp, five days, a new challenge. Can you make this idea work? Can it gain customers? Can it gain the impact that you wanted to see? And they have to generate within this first week about $250 of revenue. And if they are successful, there's a pitch event at the end. And then we invite external experts, potential donors, investors, other social entrepreneurs who will then distribute a little bit of a prize money and can basically verify that they think this could move to the next level. And then we support enterprises to register themselves to become formal. However, the majority of the ideas fails and the teams go back again to the earlier stage to take up more responsibilities, to grow again and to learn again and try again. And they can try as many times as they want until something works out. And even if it doesn't work out, people continue to grow because they're taking up responsibilities and are also paying back to the community by taking up the roles and responsibilities. So it's a win-win that keeps the running costs of the senior community low 
because there's almost no staff, as well as empowering the young people to grow. And the self-organization is almost like the curriculum. So people choose for themselves if they want to take up roles rather in marketing or in finance or in the logistics. They choose what is of interest and meaning to them and grow in that and gain the soft skills needed to present themselves, to ask questions, to work on an intrinsic motivation that aligns to their purpose and all these skills that will help them in any setting later in their life, as well as for their own social enterprise. If I'm correct, you said that there were five pillars to the sinner. So there's the confusion stage, the self-organized system. And what are the others? Yeah, the first stage, we call it the confusion stage. The second, the self-organized curriculum, almost we call it the emerging stage. And then from the emerging stage, the ideas are being tested in the concentration stage where yeah, people really try it out. Can it work? And can they make themselves to be what is needed to run the business? Because again, they haven't tried it out yet to how does it feel to really run a business? And do I have the skills and the sometimes also resilience to make that happen? And then the next stage is what we call linking stage when the enterprises are starting to gain traction and then are formalizing, having intensive mentorship to move forward and also like a working space and support to establish themselves, but still in a safe environment of the senior community where maybe some costs like rent and utilities and so on is covered, but day by day working towards becoming independent. And the day that the enterprise is able to now cover its own costs fully and profitable, then they graduate as a team, as an enterprise. And that is the final stage, which we call the mastery stage, whereby learning never ends. And also many of the enterprises in the mastery stage continue to be engaged, mentor others, or find ways to support the current enterprises or scholars in the community. And that's the final stage. That's fantastic. I was wondering if you had ever heard of the coach called Martha Beck? No. She's a really wonderful, very interesting life coach. Her Mm -hmm. background was in sociology. I studied with her and I became a life coach with her program. And she follows a a four-part life cycle, which starts with the dissolution, confusion stage, if you wish. And she also uses the metaphor of the butterfly. Okay, wow. (laughs) If you don't mind, I'm going to send you one of her books. And whenever you have a chance, just uh, dig into it, because I think that you'll like her. Mm-hmm. There is so much resonance between your work and hers, even though hers is really directed towards individuals, but y- yours is individual and community alike. So it's it's fascinating. So I have an idea, but how many enterprises have, have successfully come out of the mastery stage at Sina? We have currently 71 social enterprises that have come out of Sina that are still running right now. So of course, there was a few that started and then maybe didn't survive, but there were actually a few and the majority made it through and also are doing quite well. Even throughout COVID times when things were quite tough for many enterprises, they found new ways to uh, yeah, move forward. And the 71 enterprises have currently more or less created about 550 jobs. So our goal of creating jobs yeah, is Still, much more we want to do, but mm. 
500 and about 50 people are having a meaningful job and an income that can sustain themselves and their families. That's such an amazing result. I watched one of the videos that you sent me about a successful community enterprise from Sina. I'd love for you to tell our audience and, and me selfishly, <laughs> I want to know more about some of the problems that these budding enterprises are solving for the local Ugandan community. Yeah, I'll start with one example that is really close to my heart as well, because it connects the whole story and starts actually also in 2006 in the orphanage, because there I met Joan, and she grew up in the orphanage, and the orphanage was in within walking distance to Lake Victoria, which meant a lot of mosquitoes as well. And malaria is yeah, a big challenge and also the biggest killer for especially children below the age of five. And I remember her often being the only child that was left in the orphanage alone because everyone else went to school, but she was sick of malaria. And then she joined the sponsorship program after primary school and went throughout high school and after high school then came to join Sina. And there, again, discovered more her own purpose and her own difficult past and how that can potentially be a basis for her own enterprise. And with that connected to this problem of malaria, which doesn't have yet a real solution. You can try to protect yourself, but especially for rural people in rural villages, all the methods apart from mosquito nets inaccessible or unaffordable. So sprays and all that creams is not going to be the solution. Within the process of Sina, we discovered why not try an everyday solution that or an everyday product that everyone, even the poorest of the poorest families, are going to use on a regular basis, which is soap, and add mosquito repellent ingredients. And that's how Uganics, that's the name of the social enterprise, was started. And today is producing primarily a mosquito repellent soap and having a social business model, because again, the soap with ingredients, of course, is going to be a bit more expensive than other soaps, so unaffordable for the rural people that need it the most. But also the tourists coming to Uganda have a lot of fear against malaria. And so her primary market is the tourism industry, especially hotels that need a piece of soap every day in every room, can pay higher fees for the soap, and that allows the enterprise to subsidize the sales into the villages where they can then sell the soap at the price of any other cheapest ordinary soap. So people can buy it for the same price as any other soap, but get the added advantages of repelling mosquitoes and protecting themselves and their children. And this way, Uganix is actually really saving lives through an everyday product. And Duan went on to speak at the World Economic Forum and is currently in the US for a program and has inspired thousands of other, especially also young women in Africa to start and create something. And her own story is really a good testimony for that because it seems complicated to create a product like this, but in the end, it was a gradual process and didn't need much resources at the beginning. Over the years, she was able to win some grants and prizes and through that finance the factory that is today producing tons of soap on a regular basis. And recently they just had a big order from the Ugandan government of 150,000 pieces of soap 
a lot of revenue that came in from that as well. So that's one of the I would say biggest success stories. They have about 50 employees now and are doing quite well. That's and also it's saving lives. Mm-hmm. It, and it's helping people not be sick. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Tell me about the power of community in this story, because I have a feeling that beyond the self-organization and finding the intrinsic motivation, it is also that sort of the energy of that support that really propels people forward. Yeah, there's a lot of power in the community. Apart from the formal sessions and enterprise development support, potentially, I would say even more valuable and all of that is the informal community aspect. So people learn from each other and support each other. And there's a lot of healing in that process as well in the community. Despite our scholars coming from so diverse and difficult backgrounds, it has been over the years extremely rare to have really extremely bad behaviors, fights or violence, which is quite normal, I would say, many young people are living together. But it's, I think there's a lot of power in that people support each other and also learn from each other. In the beginning, I think it was hard to help people, for example, when they were applying for prizes, competitions and grants and so on to have a good quality in writing. And I spent hours and hours and hours trying to help and edit some of the applications. But over the years, I don't know how people learn this, Definitely from the older generations, whenever there's a prize and competition, there's almost certainly always a Sina scholar or Sina enterprise who is winning or among the winners because they have been becoming so good in being able to present themselves. And the solutions they're having is also what many people are looking for. And that also helps the scholars to bridge the gap of needing some finances to grow their enterprises, which in many cases that has provided the finances from a few hundred dollars to the highest was $100,000 of a prize money for a competition. And that can help to grow the enterprise. It's interesting you should say that because I believe that it came to me very, very late in life, probably about a year and a half ago. I realized how much we learn from each other. And for me, it came in the middle of a coaching session with other peers and someone else formulated almost like an impossible question. Like she couldn't find her words, but she knew this something she couldn't understand. And my way of functioning is so different that I would never raise my hand if I didn't know what my question was, right? I ended up getting the answer that I needed that I couldn't even fathom. And it's interesting how sometimes people who are wildly different from us in the way that we process information and and learn can just completely open doors, cognitive and otherwise, intellectually and and. So I can only imagine having so many people also genuinely being asked to be creative, right? To go against challenges. And it must be really wonderful. One thing to to add on that, one Mm. activity where we're also trying to harness Mm -hmm. the collective community intelligence and support each other is that we started with the feedback sessions. One person sits in front and receives feedback from a group and so on. And that is helpful, but what we did, was, which was much more powerful, is having a two-hour session where everyone has almost like their own small little island. So just a chair and a big room. And then 
there's everyone can give everyone feedback. So you pull your chair to someone else's chair and then the person that receives feedback is in active listening mode, not allowed to speak, just listen and receive feedback, right? Which is like a gift. If you already have the gift, then just appreciate that you get another one, but maybe it's not useful or you receive a gift that is really helpful for you. But within the two hours, there's, I don't know how many, but probably a few hundred interactions of people giving each other feedback to grow. And after that session, it's, yeah, I think you could have not achieved that kind of in that efficient way because no one knows who has shared what with whom, but overall, everyone, I think, goes away with really empowered feedback. And I wouldn't see any other way how you can achieve that in that short time frame for a group of 60 people. Yeah, that's amazing. How did this come to be? Where did you guys get the impetus or the idea to structure it this way? It was another of those things that got inspired from the master program, where we had a similar way to do it. I don't know where they got this from. And then we yeah, took their bases and tried it out and innovated a little bit further. And it works super, super well. Mm. Now, this ties in with the notion of holacracy, which I heard from you last time we talked. Can you explain to us what it is and how this was embedded in, in the Sina structure? Yeah, so initially we developed our own self-organized structure, the distributed authority, and it worked well. But almost like in a school, when you do group work, the way there's always one person who does most of it and the majority who's doing less of it. So we structured ourselves in like teams or groups or circles that had one called contact person who was maybe more the one that is trying to see that everyone is getting involved. But in the end, the one person was doing most of it. So in 2016, through the book of Reinventing Organizations, Frederick Laloux, I came across for the first time the concept of holacracy, which is a practice that is within this teal movement of trying to find ways to structure organizations in a more empowering way for everyone and distributing authority or self-organizing. And holacracy is one of the tools that has a very clear process. So there's a whole constitution that people have developed that you can even adopt into legal systems if you want to. And a clear process, how things can also change. So there's not just the teams or the circles, but also each one, each task that needs to be done is clearly defined into a role. And the role has accountabilities. What can I count on that role to do? And if I don't count on that role to do it, then how can I change it? Or if I see something else that needs to be done, then there's a governance process that I can propose something and it can be changed. So within that, it's not consensus and not top-down, but it is rather everyone is like a sensor of the organization can see what could work better than it currently does and propose something. And even if others don't like the idea, as long as they don't have a clear reason to articulate why it would create harm, the idea is going to be implemented and can be changed later. Maybe it didn't work out the way it was envisioned, but it's no problem because everything can be tried and changed over time. So it really allows for a lot of innovation from all angles and is very empowering for everyone because in the end, everyone becomes a leader and a follower at the same time. So we started in 2016 to experiment with Holacracy and adopting it and had some support over the years as well from more experienced holacracy practitioners who came out to Uganda to help us along the journey. And then also 
started to realize a bit the limitations of holacracy because it only structures the work and does it very effectively. But for example, in a community of 60 people living together, even if the work is well structured, there will be some factors that will make the work very inefficient. If, for example, jealousies and other things are coming up and I have a personal conflict with someone, we might not be able to work well together anymore. So we thought we, we saw that we needed more processes as well to have a holistic approach. How do we structure as well the community? How do we keep the community in harmony? And what happens if there's conflict in the community? How do we deal with that? And also a little bit more the personal well-being that is important for the individuals. So over that, together we yeah, have formed the, the SINA framework, which stands on those three pillars, the empowerment, trainings, but also the community, and also yeah, the, the self-organized system. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was I was on the website of the this the holocracy system to read and, and get to know it more yesterday, but I feel like I, I need to get the book that you read <laughs> to discover more about it. It's interesting what you say that it also bypasses consensus, because consensus is so hard to get that a lot of organizations just waste all of that time trying to influence each other in exactly. order to get things to to go through. And here you get to test and course correct. Hmm. Now, I read that Sina and yourself, by extension, <laughs> won the NGO Innovation Award in 2018 from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the Pan-African Award for Entrepreneurship in Education in 2019, which is amazing. You're also an MIT Innovation System Builder Fellow since 2018. And so I wanted to know, first, what is your role today in the community? And then second, what do these prizes mean to you? My role has changed a lot over the years. So from initially almost being a leader, although I didn't like that term, I didn't want to be in that position. That's how people saw me in the very first few months. But then with the self-organized structure, more and more it became equal and everyone a leader and a follower at the same time. And so I had my roles, which were partly around the trainings, the empowerment, coaching, mentoring, establishing always new ideas, how we can tackle challenges that came along the way. And since 2019, I have actually no more active roles in the main community where everything started from. Because one, that was always the goal. It needs to be able to run itself and locally owned, locally run. And there shouldn't be a German foreigner that is interfering. And I think ever since it has even boosted itself to yeah, innovate further that maybe I would have never imagined. And also, it didn't stop at this one community that we started with in 2014. But actually, since 2016, it was a group of refugees who actually found us and one day came to us and then joined. And nine months later said, if the goal for us is to create a social enterprise, can we not replicate the model of Sina into the refugee camp? where we have been living for over five years, and make that our social enterprise. And we said, why not? And supported them to start and realized that the SENA model actually can be replicated. And so they created their own local organization within the refugee camp. And also in the refugee camps, people come from very diverse backgrounds with a lot of skills, but often have lost their paperwork or they're not being accredited or they don't speak the language or there's other barriers for them 
to not really be able to access any opportunities. And so most refugees live in refugee camps in Uganda. Actually, as 1.5 million refugees. So Uganda is the biggest refugee hosting nation in Africa. And the laws are quite liberal. People can create businesses, work, move freely, and stay as long as they want. But there's hardly any opportunities. But if they have an, a space where they can self-organize, then a lot of things can actually happen. And we saw that new ideas for solving their own challenges were starting to emerge. And we wanted to now look for more refugee communities to start working in. And that's where we started to develop a, a replication approach. How do we make it happen that new senior communities can come up and not through telling anyone that this is the right solution, but having people experience Sina in the main community for about a year and then going through it, but also being equipped with extra skills on how to do the coaching, the mentoring, the self-organization, the monitoring, evaluation, the fundraising, everything needed to create and run your own community and replicate it and again, make it your own. So today, actually, we're having 10 Sina communities that are up and running and in Uganda, one in Kenya, two in Congo, one in Zimbabwe, and one in Tanzania. And new ones are on the way to start this year, two other ones, and three other ones are currently in the process to start next year. So it has started to evolve from this one community to almost like a network or a community of communities. And that meant also for me more work. So also that's one of the reasons to not be engaged so much anymore in the first community, but to support all the senior communities that we have now and to find ways how they can support each other. How can we assess the best practices? How can they locally adjust? And what changes do they do on the ground that can also be helpful for the others? And how can we collectively improve and steer the model forward? And also support the initiation, the first phase of new senior communities when they're just getting started while they're in the main community to learn everything needed, but also when they go back the first few years to really establish themselves and become also financially independent. And those have been my main roles in the recent past, as well as, as some of the fundraising and the conversations with you and others to represent or, or tell the story. Yeah. And the UNHCR Innovation Award, for example, was coming in in yeah, 2018 with one of the communities in the rapture camps. And through that, we were working then together with UNHCR, for example, for the replication in Zimbabwe. And I've been looking for more and more partnerships as well to find also organizations that are interested in exploring with us the model, sending us maybe young people from their communities to go through the replication journey, how we call it, and then potentially support them on the ground to get started. And this is how we have now reached 10 and soon 12 communities where Sina is running with the current number of about 600 young people in those 10 communities who are actively unleashing their potentials and are gaining the skills to create enterprises and are then creating their own solutions to create a future for themselves. Again, so moving. I'm so excited for you guys. Now, what do you need? What does Sina need today? If anybody listening to this is feeling, as I am, very excited by your project and and wants to get involved, what are the ways that they can do that? What skills, funds, relationships, what do you guys need? 
Yeah, first of all, big invitation to anyone. We're always open for visitors, volunteers, people to get engaged in the main community. We as well have a whole village, we call it a Sina village, where we can accommodate guests, have now 14 rooms, so people can stay for a day or even long term and get engaged and either support Sina as a whole or specific social enterprises that are already in the phase of the linking stage to make it independent, or even scholars on their ideation and creating new ideas and how they can work out. So that option is, is always available and we're highly welcoming supporters and also in all the 10 Sina communities, that's the case. So you can also support us in Congo or in Tanzania or in Kenya. But also, of course, there's financial component that is always needed to keep it running. We are still more like a nonprofit, meaning that grants and donations are enabling us to keep the work going, to keep new communities to get started, and also to keep allow the scholars to unleash their potentials and, and create their own social enterprises. We are working towards becoming more like a social business ourselves to generate revenue from the accommodation, for example. We have also three, currently three products on Amazon in Europe to purchase from the Sina social enterprises. One is recycled closing pegs, for example, from the refugee camp in Uganda. Another one is oven gloves from produced from survivors of sexual violence from one of the Sina enterprises. And another one is drinking straws from a grass made in Uganda. So you can also purchase those and support us through that. But also, yeah, overall, any connections or support to keep our work growing is highly appreciated. And one limiting factor that we have had, which we're also trying to still figure out, is how we can create also a better impact measurement system. So some of the bigger partners like UNHCR have worked together with us for one replication, but then for further replications, asked us some questions that were hard to answer. I think we have been really great in creating the impact and doing the work, but not so good in documenting it and also measuring it. And if we need to quantify the impact, especially in the educational component, it has been quite challenging. How do you measure the growth of people? And we've tried different approaches, but it has not been yet so effective as we would have wished. We have been tracking the number of enterprises and the jobs and the revenue they're creating, and those are much easier to track. But also, what does it mean for the long term? How are the lives of the individuals better, let's say, five years after than they came in compared to also people that didn't go through Sina? How do we measure this and in the end maybe have a comprehensive, this is what, if you create a new Sina community in this place, this is what it's going to mean five years later. And if we can prove that, then we'll be able to get much more support, for example, from UNHCR and others. But we have not managed to do that yet so well. That's interesting. This makes me think of the network effect of the work of Nicolas Christakis. But this is a wonderful thing that you're able to put it out there because who knows, maybe someone listening will have some thoughts and get in touch and help you with, with measuring that. Because it's true, as you said, a lot of us need to hear about the benefits before we get to invest in something. Exactly. You are also a guest lecturer now. And it's interesting because it seems to me not just so that you were very moved and your life transformed by your first trip to Uganda, but also by your studies, particularly your master's. And now you are 
a guest lecturer on social innovation and social entrepreneurship in several programs. How does that feel? And do you get to interact a lot with with students? Yeah, I grew into that role organically because the universities I studied in saw what I was doing and so started to invite me since about 2017 for a small guest lecture. And then it became more guest lectures and then the whole two-day course and then more and more. And so now I have about three or four courses for several days that I'm giving and have used the experiences from Sina to condense that into having students as well in Austria to learn social innovation and social entrepreneurship practically and actually try within a few days to really develop a social enterprise from start to finish and, and present it and also ideally get it going. So my ambition is the same to have young people create a change they want to see through social entrepreneurship. And yeah, I have through that a lot of interactions with the students and it's been quite rewarding to almost pay back to where everything started from. It's very fun and, and rewarding to also work with the students in, in, in Europe. Mm, thank you so much. Now, as the podcast is like me, it sits at the crossroads between business and mindfulness, technically mindfulness and yoga <laughs> and compassion practices. And so I like to ask all of my guests to talk to me about what works for them, what helps them live their lives, what supports them. And I don't want to fall into the the trap of talking about routines, but I'm talking about more wholesomely. What are things that just help you make you feel grounded and more at home in yourself? First of all, I really love what I'm doing. That's why I'm doing it. And to see sometimes the transformations and the stories shared for the soap, the young girl I met when she was about 11 years old and what she's doing now. And it's just really rewarding and often has me excited getting up early in the morning and yeah, working hard to have more young people create a future for themselves. But of course, there's also practices that I do that literally keep me balanced, I would say. So I like things that are active, but also a different way of almost meditation, I would say. One thing I started almost three years ago in Uganda is mountain unicycling. So a unicycle that is more like a mountain bike tire and that you can also has a brake and you can really go down hills. And in Uganda, where we are, there are quite some hills. And so I ride around with the unicycle, which is a great exercise, keeps you fit, but also needs my full attention, my full focus, right? If, because the roads are very much full of bumps and dirt and any any second or even microsecond of not paying attention fully, I, I'm, I'm going to fly and hit the ground. So that's, for example, something I really enjoy and keeps me literally in balance. I also love to sometimes play the drums, the drums that I have in, in Uganda to also get my mind off and sometimes let off some steam and just hit them. And since now three years, I also have a Ugandan wife and we have a daughter and also spending a lot of time with her to play and to just see how she's yeah, interacting with the surrounding and already a small Sina member is really wonderful as well. It keeps me grounded and also love traveling when I have an opportunity 
to explore new things and get away fully for a short while, that is also very helpful. Thank you so much. I love your unicycling story because I'm sure it's a very in intense concentration practice as well as, of course, being a workout, like you said. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything that we haven't touched on before I go to my closing questions? Anything you want to share with our audience? Yeah, one thing that I'm very excited about now when it comes to the future of Sina, almost every year it feels like a new beginning. And again, it feels like a new beginning now that things are evolving and growing and we currently have a new partnership that we're exploring that could potentially almost lead to an exponential growth or replication of, of the Sina model. And that's what we want. We don't want to have one giant organization that runs many, many branches, but we want to scale the impact without scaling the organization. And one strategy that we have found now is through existing vocational schools. There's one organization called Don Bosco who are running over 110 vocational centers in 30 different African countries. And especially in rural areas are facing the same challenges everywhere that young people finish with a diploma but and skills, but will not easily find jobs. So it's almost a bit meaningless to invest into that education if you cannot find work afterwards. So together now we're working on a pilot that six young people from two of their vocational centers are now in Sina going through a replication journey for a year to be equipped with everything to go back and next to the vocational center create a Sina community that can already tap into even the existing infrastructure, the buildings and the machines and everything on ground, but especially help the alumni to create their own enterprises after they finish from the vocational school. And if this works well, then there's 110 vocational centers that they're running, so we could easily scale it up to many more. And there's thousands and thousands of vocational centers altogether in Africa, so it feels like there might be something in the near, near future that we could actually reach yeah, a big movement of young people across many countries to create a future for themselves through the SINA model or part of the model, which is very exciting. That's awesome. I want to clap at the other end of my, of my Zoom. Thank you so much for adding that. It's, it's really wonderful. I'm crossing my fingers that this happens smoothly and soon. So let's go to my favorite closing questions, if that's okay with you. So the first one that I would like to ask you is, what does connection mean to you? What does connection mean to me? It's a good question. I think connection means to me really deeply listening and trying to understand someone else. Like often we are not fully listening, but already thinking of what we want to say or how we want to react to it. And then we are not fully connecting. Really trying to understand first and, and digging deeper and connecting on maybe we use also something called nonviolent communication, which is about connecting on the level of needs, right? And then we realize we all have the same needs and maybe different strategies how to get towards the needs. But if we can actually connect on that level, which is much beyond what we're doing, but rather what everything is causing what we're doing. I think that's the level of connection I I yeah, love to have and, and try to as well listen a lot and connect. Thank you. What is 
your favorite word, or if, if you can't find your favorite word, one that you could technically tattoo on yourself and live with for a while? I think that will have to be responsibility. Because it's a word that Sina has coined, maybe not invented, but it's almost a summary of everything we do and just the principles behind it. If everyone would live responsibly, I think we would have a very different world, meaning everyone is free, but also limits their own freedom to the point where they infringe the freedom of others. That is the responsibility that needs to be combined. Then I think we would have a very different world. So free responsibility. It's a very good one. It's, it's very, very good. <laughs> what did you want to become when you were a kid? Like a little tiny kid? Funnily enough, I wanted to be a teacher. Hmm. Now I don't see myself as a teacher at all. Maybe more like a facilitator. But it's still quite close, this act of supporting people to learn and grow. Yeah. You're right on your purpose. That's awesome. <laughs> what song best represents you? I say I wouldn't have one song that comes to my mind that can fully represent me, but maybe something in line with African drums, because when you have a group of people drumming together, you have so many individual small patterns that they do, and then by itself, they don't sound so great, but the collaboration and the co connection of everyone in the end, makes a very special vibe and it can be so diverse and changing and going from slow to fast to loud and so on. And yeah, I think I would be somehow an African drum beat. What is the secret superpower that you can share with us? I think my secret superpower is somehow the ability to really listen. Sometimes people say I don't talk so much, but I actually want to rather listen and ask questions. I, I want to grow and learn. I always feel there's a lot to learn from anyone and why should I talk too much? Then I missed the opportunity to, to learn from others. So what we have done today is not always what I usually do to talk so much, but I rather like to ask and listen much more. Thank you. What is a favorite book that you can share with us? I think I have two that have really been outstanding for me. One is now a few years old, but when it came out in 2014, around there, the one I've mentioned, the reinventing organizations, was really almost revolutionary. Someone identified that there's a new pattern in the world emerging that independently from each other, organizations are innovating the way they organize themselves. So... He was the first one to look at those organizations in detail, spend time with them and try to identify the patterns of what they're actually doing and how and puts it all in this book, Reinventing Organizations. And there's a lot of case studies. And that was, again, how we came into Holacracy and some other practices from different organizations that he outlined. So that one I can highly recommend. And then another one I recently came across, which is just, I think, a very powerful story in this direction of social entrepreneurship is, I think, well-known only in Australia and New Zealand, but I think the whole world should look more at it, which is called Chapter One, which is from a social enterprise that has really become a market leader in Australia in some market segments. And the story, how they did it with very interesting marketing techniques. And also the book 
how it is written is just outside the box. For example, I have the book somewhere, but since there will not be video anyway, but I can explain it. For example, every book is typically written, you read from left to from one page to the other. They decided, let's just switch it around and you read from top to bottom, like the other way around. You have the the middle part, basically, not vertical, but horizontally. And it's just a very different experience to read. But it has a meaning why they did that. And it connects so much to their whole story. So I can just highly recommend it. It's also available as a kind of pay-what-you-want section. Both books actually have this pay-what-you-want model, which I think in both cases connects well to what they want to achieve. That It shouldn't be a barrier to get the knowledge. That sounds amazing. I don't think I've ever heard that for a book. Imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself, so imagining future you, what do you think is the most important advice that future you could give to present time you? That's a very challenging question. I think we have used that question a few times the other way around. And I think it's something we can also ask some of our scholars sometimes and see oh, what the yes. questions are. So I'm happy <laughs> you're asking me that question. I think the future me would tell me that maybe I still love what I do, but I maybe work quite a lot. I don't see it always as work because it's enjoyable. However, yeah, it means potentially I miss out sometimes on other things of life because maybe the hours I put in are quite high. So maybe the future me would give me advice to also make sure I have enough downtime and time to regenerate and spend time also with my family, which I do quite a lot, but sometimes also with, okay, I need to now finish this and finish this without fully completely being present sometimes. And maybe that's something I would wish to change. Maybe the future me would advise me to do that as well. Thank you. And that brings us to my last question. What brings you happiness? Happiness comes for me a lot when I see the transformation of the people, people who, again, like caterpillars, couldn't believe that they can fly. And now they're really literally flying around the world and inspiring others to also create a change. There was one senior scholar from a refugee camp who I think summarizes it quite well when he said, one, there's some people that even made t-shirts that say, I'm the change I want to see in the world, which is great. <laughs> and and then another one who, who said that I'm living my dream instead of dreaming my life. And that's that's a really nice statement. Thank you so much, Etienne. I really appreciate you making the time to answer all of my questions, though I could have asked you about 10 or 20 more, but I wanted to be mindful of your time. How is the best way, if anybody's curious and wants to connect, where could they find you? Yeah, please do reach out. You can find me on LinkedIn, Etienne Sarbon, that's a great way. Or also on email, Etienne at socialinnovationacademy.org. Feel free to reach out and we can talk more. Awesome. I will put links in the show notes for all of the different things we've talked about, including the books, including the Amazon products, 
And what is the name of the company from you? Joanna, Eugenics, yeah. Yona Uganics. Fantastic. So I'll put all that in there so people can go and, and check it out. And congratulations on the work that you do on your team. And I'm looking forward to meeting you hopefully in person sometime very soon again. <laughs> yeah, it would be wonderful. And thank you so much for having me. Take care. And you too. Bye-bye. Bye. So, friends and listeners... Thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, Anne Mühletaler on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website anvmilitale.com if you don't know how to spell it it's also going to be in the show notes if you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter so that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds I hope that you will join me again next time and until then Be well, be safe, and take care.